Welcome back to another episode of the Lawyers in the Making podcast. I'm your host, as always, Nate Crespo, and today we have another extraordinary guest. He's a University of Michigan Law School graduate and is the founder of Showwolf Mediation. He's held past positions as a managing shareholder at Michaels, Showwolf, and Salerno, and as a shareholder at Michaels and May. Very happy to have him, very happy to have him on the podcast today. Mr. Stephen Showwolf, welcome to the podcast. How are we doing today? We're having a great evening, Nate. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Well, I'm excited for you to be here. And before we get started, Steve, can you introduce yourself to the audience, please? All right. Well, as Nate said, I'm an attorney. Uh, I currently live in Austin, Texas, but I am a as you can tell from my accent, a born and raised Chicagoan. Uh, so uh, I practiced in uh, Chicago for 25 years. I started out in big law uh, at, uh, at a firm at the time called Lord Bissell and Brook. It's now Lock Lord, uh, ironically merged with a, a Texas firm uh, down here. Um, after that, I uh, left to uh, teach for two years at a law school in Bulgaria. Uh, so I did that for two years, came back stateside, worked with some folks who used to be at LVNB, wound up being a founding partner at Michaels and May, later Michael Schulte and Salerno. And then uh, in 2019, uh, um, really for my wife's job, uh, she got a great opportunity here in Austin, Texas, and we moved to Austin, uh, really without ever having had ever been to Austin, Texas. So uh, we did that. Uh, and obviously, when we tell people, how long have you been here, it still seems a little weird, because COVID years are a little bit different than real years. So we, we felt like we were just settling in. I wrapped up my my firm, my wife was going back and forth uh, for an MBA. So we moved in February, March of 2019, but it wasn't until about September, October that we were staying full time in Austin. So that only gave us about four months before the world stopped. Uh, so we're finally, I think, getting our stride here, here, here in Austin, Texas. So. Well, I'm happy to hear that you're in beautiful Austin, Texas. I'm going to have to add it to my lengthy, very lengthy bucket list that I've been almost creating on this podcast. I always tell people I'm going to try. I'll be, I'll get there one day. Do not worry, everyone. Um, this is a good time to come. It was 80 <laughs> today. Uh, you might, might want to think twice if, if it's August and, you know, every day is about, a, you know, 105. But, uh, you know, days like today when it's in the 70s and 80s in February, I don't miss the Chicago uh, winter, especially the end of a Chicago winter. Well, I, I'm in the midst of an Albany winter right now. It was 27 degrees today, beautiful, sunny, and absolutely freezing. But, you know, I get through the day. I do indeed. So let's go back to the wonderful year of 1991. I was negative 12 years old, uh, and you were at the University of Illinois studying Russian, Central, East European, and Eurasian studies, as well as history. And you decided that following you to go to the University of Michigan Law School, why'd you go to law school? Why'd you do it? Simple as that. 
Well, I joke with people who know me at the time that my my options out of college uh, were law school or treason. Um, and and so uh, I, I say that because I, I was recruited by the company. Uh, I, I visited uh, Langley, uh, Virginia, went through uh, some of their um, interviews, and there was part of me that thought, wow, being, you know, James Bond, uh, you know, or some kind of spy would be really cool. But in a very unusual self-aware moment for my 21-year-old self, I realized, frankly, that the first very attractive Soviet spy would probably get state secrets from me. So going to law school was the safer course of action uh, uh, than uh, taking the job with the CIA. So there you have it. Yeah, I, I have it written down right here in, in big letters, law school or treason. You had told me on the phone call before uh, a, a couple of weeks back when we were talking initially, and I was going to get to that eventually, but you beat me to it. And I was very interested in, in, in what you really meant by that. But that's very interesting that uh, you, you were being recruited. Was it the FBI, CIA? What was it? It was the CIA. Um, yeah, I and it's interesting because, I mean, it's so long ago, but I wrote an undergraduate uh, thesis before the Soviet Union, you know, disbanded, saying that the Soviet Union would disband and that the number one issue would be securing nuclear weapons outside of Russia. So the nuclear weapons in Kazakhstan and in the Ukraine. And so I didn't know it at the time, but I'm getting emails now from Google Scholar, like, oh, is this your article? Because people, for whatever reason, want to know what I was thinking when I was 20, and how it relates to what's going on today, you know, because, you know, what wound up happening at the time was the Ukraine gave up control over nuclear weapons that were in, you know, their control uh, in exchange for Russia recognizing their territorial sovereignty. So obviously that didn't exactly go go as planned. Um, but I guess somebody at the CIA got a hold of that and they invited me to to Langley and uh we had some talks and conversations and uh it was uh, a road not taken which is part of the reason why after I go to law school and working at a large firm in those years then the wall did fall um and uh it was 1998 and um Lord Bissell and Brooke introduced the internet and I didn't have a computer at home and, you know, this was this weird thing. And I'll, I'll protect the names of the innocent, but, you know, <laughs> they introduced they introduced the Internet. And, like, this shows you back, what, you know, 1998, you know, what people, you know, the attitude about the Internet. There was somebody who got in trouble because they came in and, you know, started looking at porn and were, were, <laughs> were printing it off. And the printer jammed. And they just went home. So their assistant, you know, Monday morning comes in and, you know, then we had new policies on, on, on what we could do. But I actually surfed the Internet and wound up finding a program that placed Western attorneys directly at u universities in the former Soviet bloc. Um, and so I applied for that in August of 1990. A, thinking I would take a year, and they asked me where I wanted to go, and I said, Bulgaria, 
And they were a little surprised because they said, you know, do you have family? And I said, no. So I had three different reasons. The first one is everybody in the U.S. when they were talking about the former Soviet bloc assumed that everybody was living in you know, the weather that you have today in, in, in Albany, right? You know, the, the the East Block was this cold place. Now, if I told people that I was going to Greece, they don't think that. But I wound up, I was in Plovdiv, Bulgaria, you know, less than 100 miles from the Greek border. So there's not a giant fridge at that border. So I wanted to go to a place that had nice weather, particularly because everybody was going to be smoking. And so if everybody's smoking, I can tolerate it if we're outside and smoking, but not 24-7 if you're like, you know, inside. So that was one reason. Bulgarian and Russian language linguistically are relatively close. So I thought I'd be able to learn the, the language. And the last reason is I, I'm Jewish. People know a lot about Denmark and the Danes during World War II, but actually Bulgaria was the only country during World War II, whose Jewish population increased, they actually were, they had a deal to deport all their Jews to concentration camps. And on my birthday in 1943, all the Jews in Bulgaria were rounded up and then they were told they could go home. So they, they wound up not being deported. So I figured if I was going to do something um, relatively pro bono, I was paid the amount that a tenured law professor was paid in Bulgaria at the time, which was about $150 a month. Um, so if I was going to do something that, you know, was a little bit less than what I was making at big law at the time, uh, that was the place. So after telling the person that, it turned out that they had a woman from France who was going to teach some of the courses that I said I was willing to teach, who... She had been in Bulgaria the year before. Her father got cancer and she canceled at the last minute. So after we had the interview, they asked me whether I would consider for that year, not the following year. <laughs> and so I wound up finding friends to live in my condo, quitting my big law job, preparing syllabi for two legal classes and moving to Bulgaria in 11 days in uh, in uh, August of 1998. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> that's how I got to Bulgaria. Well, that I mean, that's just, it's just utterly fascinating. I'm, that's amazing. I really have no words right now. Um, I mean, Bulgaria that I've never been see, see the bucket list, it continues to grow. I got to put Bulgaria on there now. I'd love to go to Bulgaria. Uh, let me think. I'm, I think I oh no, he's he's Hungarian. I was trying to think. I'm very into soccer, so I was trying to think if I know any Bulgarian soccer. Well, players. so he, you're probably too young. So most Bulgarians, when I told them that I was from Chicago, Bulgaria in 1994 beat Germany in the World Cup, mm -hmm. and they had this guy Christo Stoichka. Christo Stoichkov won the golden boot about three years in a row. He, I think he might've been like the last guy before Messi and Ronaldo kept winning it every year. So, but he was largely considered the best soccer player in the world. 
in 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 the early '90s. So uh, yeah, um, and ironically, he ended his career like a lot of European soccer players playing in Chicago for the <laughs> Chicago Fire in the MLS. So yeah, <laughs> I, I'm actually I, I am familiar with Mr. Stoichkov. There, uh, I've I've used them in FIFA before, the video game. Uh, but that that was that's the extent of that. But I don't mean to I don't mean to go all the way back. But I have to ask. Go back to the University of Michigan Law School because I I love the anecdote about Bulgaria. But I have to ask, how was the first year of law school? Because people always say it's traumatic. It's very intense. Some people love it. Some people don't really like it that much. How was it for you? You know, I I met some great people and I have good friends. Uh, you know, from that time period. But you know, my recollection of the first year uh, was it was it was a pretty big pressure cooker most of the most of the students lived um if you've ever seen pictures at michigan hutchins hall is like this there's a law quad so there's the legal buildings and then it's surrounded by you know essentially the the residence hall for law students and so everybody is like all like right there right everybody's living you know together and i think when you put a lot of law students together um at you know what was considered a it is considered a, a really good school so there's a lot of competitive people and unfortunately i thought was maybe a little bit more competitive than collaborative i mean you had the stories you know back in the day you know, I learned to shepherdize with books, right? Um, I didn't learn computer research. I'm trying to think maybe at the end of law school and at the beginning of, but when I started practicing law, I had a partner who thought computer research was cheating, that, you know, he <laughs> needed you to go to a library and copy a book. I know you're laughing, but it's, uh, you know, it's it's true that, that, that you know, I'm, I'm dating myself. But so there were assignments where, you know, you were looking for an article or something and it was magically cut out of, you know, the book at the library and, and things like that. So it was a little cutthroat. I think after the weird thing about law school is everything, in my opinion, calms down after the first year. Like everybody's all upset or, or just under pressure. I think there's a mystery to what the tests are going to be like and how it's going to be graded. And I think once you get through that first year, then people kind of settle down. Uh, you know, at least that was that was my <laughs> recollection of it. Yeah, that that's that's great to hear. Um, and it's always nice to demystify things such as that. Um, even as cutthroat as maybe the University of Michigan was, I've I, from what I've heard from other schools, some are more collaborative, some some you know more growing support system. You know, people get together, they kind of make outlines, they do all this stuff. But even that, and obviously, even if you do cut out a page of a book nowadays, you could just find it on the internet anyway. Right. So it, I feel like maybe it's become a bit harder to be as cutthroat as it once was. Well, yeah. I remember I was, th there were four sections and our section was this kind of slightly more experimental, like we were going to take a couple different things. And 
there was something weird that happened before one of our semesters so that we wound up not taking a seminar that they had planned. So instead of having 17 credits, we had 15 credits. And, you know, each section is different, right? Well, the there were a ton of people in the other sections, and to me this was bizarre, who were all upset and they complained that if we had two less credits, and we were in a different section, I don't even understand why it was a problem, but th that somehow that gave us an advantage that we could focus on. I mean, and that's where I was like, I don't, I don't get this. And I mean, frankly, you know, I'm thinking we got screwed out of whatever seminar we were supposed to get. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure, you know, it was that big of a deal one way or the other. But, you know, I, that first year, everything was a big deal to people. So let's move on. Let's go after you graduate law school. You become an associate at Lord Bissell and Brooke, which I have heard before. Uh, Dan Cotter, I, I recall, had went there, former guest. Yeah, Dan, Dan and I are six months apart. Uh, I started, um, at least I think that this is the case. I started in like September of 1994, and I forgot why, but Dan might have started in like January, February of 95. So, so I, I remember playing on the Lord Bissell basketball team. <laughs> so speaking of the Lord Bissell, the Lord Bissell Brook experience, how was that? Did you love it? Did you hate it? How was it? You know, I, I think there's a lot of folks who go through big law as a rite of passage. I, I think, um, there's no question that I learned a lot about being an attorney and that there were some very smart people there and the firm attracted some very high profile cutting edge cases uh, that, you know, you, you just don't get exposed to otherwise. Um, and so I don't think it's a surprise that ultimately I was a founder of my own firm that eventually I felt that maybe there were some better ways you, you can run, run a firm. But I have really no complaints about, you know, what my early exposure, you know, was. I, I, I do think, you know, if you want to be a litigator, um, you know, at the large firms, it's real hard to get into court. Um, so, you know, I did that through some other you know, means, um, you know, some pro bono cases and things like that. But, um, you know, I never knew I was going to do insurance coverage. Now, the thing about Lord Bissell that I was fortunate about is, you know, they had a large summer associate program and they were one of the few firms in Chicago who, um, had reserved a few spots for one else. So, and basically it was because somebody in the executive committee went to Michigan. They had every summer, they'd have somebody from Yale, somebody from Michigan, somebody from Northwestern and somebody from University of Chicago. So I was the Michigan one L that year. And so what that did is I knew that they, if I wanted to litigate there, a lot of what they were doing was insurance coverage. 
So I wound up either my second or third year of law school taking an insurance, you know, uh, class that I probably otherwise don't take. But I, I had an offer already from a firm that did a lot of that. So that I think that helped me. Um, and, you know, it it really reduced the pressure in law school, knowing that I had an offer after my my first uh, year. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting point you make there, sort of taking the weight off your shoulders when you know you have those opportunities outside of outside of law school and, and opportunities and actually, you know, making some money because, you know, we all need money. Um, but I have to I have to ask from that. Uh, it seems like as much as you know, you did go to Michigan and that person was looking for Michigan people, it seems like an integral part of having a network and also finding mentors. Can you talk about the importance of sort of networking and how it's affected your life or impacted your life in any way? Well, I'll tell you, I think, you know, first of all, you're doing a great job. Uh, you know, these days, I think with technology, people have more opportunities almost than I think, um, you know, than, than we had. And I don't know whether it was naive. I was not, um, neither of my parents went to college. So it's not like I was a third generation, you know, lawyer. So in a lot of ways, I didn't really know what to expect. Um, and I did not, frankly, do a lot of networking in, in the sense of, I, I mean, I had a job lined up. I did, I did summer at a different firm my second year. Um, but, um, so I, you know, would try to meet people there, but to be fair, I don't think I really had a mentor. Um, you know, again, I don't want to name names or, or bury anybody, you know, large law firms are, are like fraternities. I think, you know, you meet a handful of people from a firm or from a fraternity and you think, and by the way, I was not ever in a fraternity, but you know, you, you make the stereotype of, Oh, they're like so-and-so. Um, I worked for a junior partner who it became pretty clear. I learned a lot about being a good lawyer. Um, the, the best skill that I learned from him, even though it was frightening. So this was before electronic service, right? So I used to joke my big skill as a first year lawyer was I could get a brief to the FedEx drop off at O'Hare airport pretty efficiently. Um, so that meant if you missed the last drop off in the loop, you had to drive out to the airport because you know you gained a couple hours um but i worked for a guy who i mean he would still be editing a brief you know 15 minutes before my drop dead i have to run you know to the airport and while that was annoying and and clearly he could have done things more efficiently the the skill that i learned from him was the ability to take a look at a draft that you spent a lot of time on and that you worked at 
But to be able to self-edit, to be able to realize, even though I put a lot of time on this, that this paragraph is unnecessary or this needs to be moved. Now, hopefully you can do that but a little with a little more time to spare before the deadline than he did. But but those were very good lessons, um, you know, and uh, and so that was great. Although we did hit a point where he told me with a straight face that he felt he got to the point where he could write a brief word for word like what his senior partner would have done and that I needed to get to the you know, to the stage where I would write a brief word for word as how he would write it. And I would just tell him, I'm like, that's, that, that's crazy. I can't write a brief on a Tuesday. That's word for word of what the brief I would write on a Wednesday. Um, and, and so that was when I started to start surfing the net for jobs in Bulgaria. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> I, 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 I knew I wasn't going to be long there, but I, I did learn a lot. Um, and I wouldn't say he was a mentor, but I learned a lot about the nuts and bolts skills of being a, a lawyer for the people that I worked with at Lord Bizzle. Yeah, I think it's absolutely, absolutely right that even, even in some negative experience, there's always something to learn. There's a, there's always a, a bigger lesson trying to be maybe not conveyed directly, but indirectly, uh, you know, and the sorts of skills that you can build off of that. Now, you did your 11 days to get ready for Bulgaria. You went to Bulgaria. And this is more of just a life question. Going to Bulgaria, how did that sort of shape you as a person going forward? And how did it sort of, you know, affect your perspective on the world? Because I just have to know you were in Bulgaria for two years. I mean, that's that's got to really just shape you in some sort of way. You know, I think the really interesting thing about it was... You gained a, I gained a perspective. I was happy to leave. You know, we talked about how first year of law school is this, you know, bubble and pressure cooker. Well, I mean, it's similar, I think, when you're starting out your legal, you know, career and there's a little bit of a rat race and things like that. And I think the two years in Bulgaria really allowed me to reassess what I wanted to do with my life. They were trying to, you know, pick my brain as to why I was leaving. And, you know, at one point I heard several people say, you know, you shouldn't be throwing away a legal career. And I realized that there were so many very smart, hardworking, good lawyers who really had a mentality about a career has to go in a certain direction. And if it doesn't, you know, God forbid you deviate from it a little bit, you know, it, it's going to ruin everything. And, and, and I realized that that wasn't true. And so for a lot of these people were telling me this. I realized it was, it was liberating that to, to recognize that I had much more control over my career um, than I thought I had, or those people thought that they had, you know, over me. And, you know, not only did I not, you know, end my legal career, within five years of getting back from Bulgaria, I had started my own, you know, firm. So, uh, you know, I think it just gave me, you know, some perspective. And, you know, the other thing is you feel fortunate. Um, I have uh, some really good uh, friends, both 
in the legal community and not in the legal community in Bulgaria. But some of the ones who are lawyers, you know, if they were working here, they'd be extremely successful. Uh, you know, they're smart, they're driven, um, you know, but they, they do okay. But, you know, Bulgaria is still one of the poorer countries, um, you know, in, in, in Europe. So it gives you a perspective of realizing how you're fortunate. It also, though, you know, it, 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 there are certain things that make you question things. Like I, I, I remember, um, you know, hearing in earnest a question from, you know, a student of mine as to how there could be homeless in America. And, and the, the question was, well, don't these people like have cousins? Because the point and, and and so you basically have to say, yeah, you know what? In the U.S., you know, cousins don't take care of cousins, you know, or at least it's not, you know, the default rule. I mean, some clearly do, but you know, this idea that oh well, isn't there any family? And 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 you know, I think it's weird because when you get asked the question, it's one thing to be debating it with people here, but when you get out of the bubble and you start talking, you realize that certain things don't necessarily have to be the way they are. Uh, now it doesn't, and I'm not bashing, you know, the U S but you, you, you know, I mean, it was funny. Just, I mean, even silly, stupid things. Bulgaria was much, you know, farther behind the U.S. in most things. But I do remember when you'd go to the movie theater. So when I went to the movie theater before, like, you know, now it's different. But when I would go to the movie theater up until that point in my life, you know, if, if the movie theater was pretty much sold out, you were like wandering around trying to find the one you know, free seat, you know, friends didn't know whether they could sit together. So the first time I went to a movie in Bulgaria, a guy shows me a computer screen. And he says, you know, what seat do you want? And I was like, oh, that's not a bad idea. <laughs> you know, and it was just kind of like weird. I was like, well, how come they're doing that? <laughs> you know, and obviously now everybody Fandango and things like that. But, you know, just stupid things like that where you're like, oh, OK. I mean, I hadn't even thought that there might be a different way to do it. You know, I posted on LinkedIn. My firm, when I started, immediately had voice over IP, you know, Internet phones. And the reason was when I was in Bulgaria, it cost. Five dollars a minute if I wanted to call back to the to the U.S. And like I said, I was making one hundred fifty dollars a month, so that that wasn't going to happen. And then I started seeing guys with headphones and a laptop on the street, and they'd have a sign saying, "You want to make a phone call?" Like, well, how does this work? And they're like, "What? I just put this phone number in, and..." Uh, you know, they had software and poof, I could call for a nickel. Um, and so, you know, the technology wasn't great, but, you know, they were adopting technology much more quickly uh, than we were in the States. So when I came back and started to hear about Internet and I had, 
some of my partners be like, oh, you know, I mean, the phones, obviously, that's a very important thing. You don't want to risk. And I'm like, no, it works. <laughs> you know, it, 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 you know, and so now I don't think anybody uses a PBX anymore. But at the time, going to uh, VoIP was, you know, this weird thing. And the only reason I would have even known about it was because I lived in Bulgaria. That's Amazing. I don't think I've ever heard anything better than walking around with a laptop with headphones on. That's just utterly fascinating. <laughs> I'm really trying to wrap my mind around that right now. But even before, like the rest of pretty much, the, I guess, I don't want to call it the first world, but, you know, the the bigger world, the US and, and all the European countries and everyone else, the fact that Bulgaria is one of the first people to, you know, obviously in your own experience to start doing internet phone calls is just blowing my mind right now. And I, now I have to look up about Bulgaria after this episode. Well, you know, but it, it, it some things make sense when you think about it. A lot of countries started doing apps and necessity is the mother of invention. So there were societies in which the base phone network was terrible. So in the U.S., people were used to their phones, their phones worked, and so they were a little suspicious. Well, in Bulgaria... My phone, because it was back in the days of, of, uh, of, of, you know, the Communist Party was spying on people. So my home phone was connected to my neighbors. So they could hear me and I could hear them. So nobody wanted to really talk on the phone. So when cell phones came out, they immediately skipped modernizing their regular phones and invested in cells while the U.S. was still a little bit lagging behind because we were comfortable with the, you know, uh, our regular phone system. And that's true in Africa and parts of Asia as well. Well, I, I, I will be sure to be looking into that after this because I, I'm um, now, now, now I need to know. But I just want to go back to a point you made a little bit further, uh, further back before, uh, talking about why you decided to go to Bulgaria and sort of the pressure you were getting from some of the people in in your own law firm. And I think it's such probably the most important point we could make today about taking risks and being able to go off the traditional path that there really is no traditional path in sort of the legal field, and that's the reason why I created this podcast to, to show off how many different ways that you could get into the law, even leave law and come back to it. Uh, and it brings me sort of to something that I'm reading in a book right now, uh, the four hour work week by Tim Ferriss. And he talks about this so much uh, about, you know, sort of breaking away from that traditional path, uh, thinking about what's the worst that could really happen if, if I were to drop, you know, my career right now, and sort of, you know, go travel, go to Bulgaria for two years, do some teaching. And I think it's a really, really important point to make. But I want to go to where you came back to the U.S. You started your own law firm. Michael's in May. Now, I have to ask, because every time I ask about people opening a law firm, it seems to open up a whole entire Pandora's box of how hard and tough it is at the beginning of opening a law firm. So you can, can you tell us a little bit about your experience starting your own firm? Well, it's terrifying. Uh, you know, I mean, if you if you're working at a large firm, whatever the pros and cons are, you know, the biggest pro is you're not too worried about that check bouncing, right? So you're you're going to get a check 
regardless of whether your clients are paying. Now, if your clients don't pay after a while, that may trickle down, but you don't see it immediately. Um, and frankly, at a large firm, you don't even know what's going on behind the curtain. Um, so when you set up your own firm, I mean, the first thing is you basically have to wait about eight to 10 months before you get paid. You know, so that's, uh, you know, that's a terrifying, you know, uh, length of time. Um, and you're out of your comfort zone. I mean, for better or worse, I did all of the admin. So that's, you know, had a, uh, I wound up having friends, frankly, help out on the IT side, help out on the accounting side, but talking about setting up you know, those systems, um, you know, that's, that's scary because nobody who starts their own firm, I think, starts on day one as an expert in all those things, right? And so you're, you're just terrified that the phones, the computers aren't going to work, um, you know, but um, knock on wood, uh, you know, after about three or four months, you work out those kinks. And, you know, the real issue is going to be, um, you know, there's rules, ethical rules. You're not allowed to solicit um, clients while you're still working somewhere else. Um, and so my, I was able to have some time to set up the firm in between uh, Bulgaria and um, Michaels and May. I was at a different firm. And so, again, this was the road not taken. When I came back from Bulgaria, I was nominated to lead a USAID legal aid project back in Bulgaria. Um, so I thought I was going to go back to Bulgaria, uh, this time actually making real money. Um, and um, that process dragged out. And so here's one thing that I'll say to anybody out there, know what that means. Like everybody thinks partners is pot at the end of the rainbow. So I said no. And I said no, because I, I liked the people I was working with, but I thought the firm was a poorly run business. And so I said, no, I don't want to invest my own money into a business that I think is not being run very well. So, I had about six months to start setting up the business plan, find office space, and uh, you know get ready to to start the firm. So that that helped because I didn't have a fiduciary duty because I wasn't a partner at the other firm. So it made it a little bit easier. Yeah, that that's that's awesome to hear. It's a it's an inspiring story, and 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 it, and it further shows you know. Through, through the struggle, there is some light at the end of the tunnel always. Uh, so let's go to what you do now. You're the founder of Showwolf Mediation. What do you do there? How's the experience been? And just, you know, talk about it. Well, it's been great. I, uh, I joke, though, that I had the world's worst business plan the second time around for this business because, um, you know, Moving to a jurisdiction where you've never practiced and putting a shingle out is really, there's no other way to say it, a stupid business plan. Um, now, look, the reason I did it 
uh, is I'll admit after being the managing partner of the firm for 15 years, I was open to transitioning to do something else. I had been trained previously in mediation. I've always been interested in negotiation philosophies. Mediation was something that appealed to me as something that I felt that I have, I, I, I like math and probability and I think I'm able to talk in terms of case evaluations with both sophisticated and lay people in a way to help them at least understand their own risks. Um, and, you know, I like the, the legal challenge. So I enjoy the legal challenges of, of different types of, of, of cases. And, and uh, yeah, I like meeting new people and dealing with new personalities. So mediation, uh, you know, giving people the opportunity to resolve something that they on their own haven't been able to do over years is very satisfying. Um, so I knew that my first year or so, I was going to do a lot of pro bono work and that was fine because when I was managing partner and I had a pretty busy caseload, I didn't do as much pro bono as I would have liked. So I, I, I kind of felt that the worst thing that could happen is that I hone my skills and I do, you know, a lot of pro bono stuff and that's what I did. And then obviously the pandemic happened, which was good in some ways because it, open the notion of being able to do zoom mediations for people back in illinois so I, I i was able to do that but it i think zoom mediation works but you still don't develop the rapport you know there's a lot of people who use the same mediators because they've been in the trenches with them they feel they they have a comfort zone and as much as you can help people out online, I don't think you quite get that connection. So so the pandemic was probably another hurdle in what was an otherwise stupid business plan. So it, it's taken a little bit, uh, you know, to uh, get uh, traction, but uh, I, I got two new banners today. So, uh, you know, I think th 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 things are you know, in, in going in the right direction. My, my wife is killing it with her job. Uh, I think she was destined to, she's in healthcare. She's a chief medical officer of a hospital here and uh, showed great leadership during the pandemic. So it, it seemed like it was meant, uh, you know, to, to, to be. So, um, and, you know, frankly, now it's less of a reason. When we moved here, my dad had cancer. Um, I was able, mediation, the great thing about mediation is I don't have to explain to you why I'm not available on a particular day. You ask me what days I'm available, I'll, I'll tell you when I'm, uh, you know, available. And if I, my calendar has an X in it because I flew to Florida to go to my dad's chemo, you know, that, that was something I was able to do. So it was, it was a good time in my life to be able to deal with some family, uh, you know, issues. Um, so, um, you know, we all have to weigh different things uh, in, in life. I, I, I make less than a first year associate does now, but that's OK. Uh, so uh, but uh, we're th think things are going in the right direction, uh, supported uh, 
you know, my wife, we pushed this back a half hour because I had to have dinner on the table for her when she came home from work today. So she had a hard day. <laughs> so. Well, I mean, it, it, you know, it's the trials and tribulations of life, but you seem to be getting through it with flying colors. You seem ve like a very happy person. You very much enjoy what you love, you, what you do. You love to do what you do. And I think that's such an important point to be made on this podcast, because at the end of the day, you got to love what you do or, you know, you just you're just going to hate yourself for it. And I, I do feel that my generation had the ability to pursue that a little bit more than than yours. You know, I paid my way through college, um, but. I can't stand when people my generation say that because it wasn't that expensive. I, I was fortunate enough that I was a decent tennis player and I wound up teaching at, you know, a country club and I made easily, you know, tuition for college. So the thing about that, I said, both my parents didn't go to college. So they were not helicopter parents. They didn't ask me what I was doing. So I just, you know, my freshman year started taking Russian classes because, you know, I had heard about the Soviet union and things like that. And I, I, I mean, I had, I would go from differential equations to, uh, you know, Russian, you know, and I think I was probably the only, you know, guy at the university who did that. Let's go to our last three questions here. First of the question is going to be, what are the sorts of things that you consume, not food, uh, on a daily basis that be, you know, social media, uh, you know, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, uh, you know, what people, do you have any people that you read on a daily basis? What is crossing the transom of Steve's mind on a daily basis? On a daily basis. Well, I am uh, pretty active on LinkedIn. I try to get up in the morning and think of something to post on. And so I do, um, usually I'll look at some uh, updates from Law 360, um, sometimes on insurance, sometimes on arbitration. I'm also a AAA arbitrator. Um, so, um, you know, I look through if there's an interesting case, then I'll write about, about that. And I like to read other people's updates. So second to last question here, what does an ideal Sunday morning or Friday night look for Steve? Boy, uh, well, two different things, I think, <laughs> you know, fr Friday night, good dinner with my wife, uh, you know, um, probably Friday, we relax a little bit uh, after, uh, you know, the, 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 the work week. So probably lamely, we're either binge watching something or reading something after, uh, you know, dinner. Um, Sunday, um, if I could play tennis, maybe do a hike or, uh, if it's more in the summer, go paddle boarding, uh, you know, or for a bike ride, uh, you know, get outside. Definitely like to, to be outside, uh, a, a, a bit. Austin's great for different, uh, hiking possibilities. Uh, so, uh, we're still exploring. So, uh, we, we, we enjoy that. Any, 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 any new shows you've been binge watching? What are some of your favorites? I have to ask. Well, so I've gotten into watching like after Parasite, I, I'm like 
fascinated with like Korean stuff. So, you know, we watched Squid Games and uh, so I'm watching, my, my wife hasn't been watching this one uh, called Marry My Husband. It's a, it's a Korean uh, show on, on Netflix. So I guess that, that, that's what I'm currently watching. Well, I, I absolutely love Parasite. It's one of my favorite movies ever. Very deep. It's like a good book. Like I think it's more it's more of a, I wish they I don't know if it's a book. I don't think it is, but it should be. It is so absolutely entrenched with so many small tiny details. And I'm a lover of small tiny details. Well, right. And 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 what you found is that a lot of Korean you know, movies work on similar themes a lot of class themes a lot of symbolism with just i guess the way soul i've never been is you know is even just laid out with mm -hmm. like some of the poor neighborhoods you know down you know hills so that when it rains you know that that's a, you know a true issue uh um so yeah uh we went they had it, i guess it was it's a 25 year old movie called old boy but it's considered a you know, a, a pretty significant film in that genre in Korea. And they had, they reissued it and we, we saw that and thought that was interesting. Well, that's absolutely wonderful. Last question here. I do this at the end of every episode, Steve, what are your words of wisdom to the aspiring law students, the current law students and the current league of professionals out there in the world? Well, you touched on something that I have been fortunate enough to do in my life and that is you know follow what interests you and i think it is e more easier said than done because right now the cost of tuition you know taking an extra year of college you know back in my day people would joke about it but it wasn't it wasn't a fifty thousand dollar deal it wasn't a seventy five thousand dollar deal the way it is you know now so um i think if you can do you know what your passion is obviously do that i also think you need to think of your career in stages and you might you know if you're in debt and you need to get the job for the money for a certain period of time don't be bitter about it still you know even if you think okay i'm not going to be doing this forever you need to be open-minded about what can I learn? You know, um, you might not want to work at a large firm your whole career, but they obviously do certain things correctly, right? They, 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 they've, um, they're attracting interesting clients, interesting work. Um, they can afford to pay first years, you know, a fair amount of money. So they're obviously doing something right. And so learn what you can ignore you know try to ignore the noise and and the bad stuff focus on uh the good stuff and you know always be open you know i i guess not everybody needs to on 10 days notice you know <laughs> dr drop and leave the country but you know i think it's it's fair to say always have the mindset of why would i say no to x and if you always are asking yourself that, you'll realize most of the reasons you can work around. You know, now there's some things that maybe you can't. I'm 200,000 in debt and I can't go to Bulgaria for $150 an hour. I, I mean, you know, a month. I get that. But, you know, there's other things like, oh, I don't know what 
people would think or how my resume would look. Your resume will always look better if it shows that you've been following things that interest you because when you're talking about it, people will understand that you're passionate about what you're doing. And I think that that will always be your best selling point. Well, Steve, beautifully said, I would say poetic. And that's the podcast, Steve. Thank you so much for coming on and doing this with me. And for everyone out there listening, thank you for tuning in. And I will see you in the next one.